how are we doing today, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Ken Burke, and welcome back to the Competing for Christ podcast. Today, my special guest is Joe Zelenka, Wake Forest alum and former NFL long snapper for a few teams, including a couple of my favorites, the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Atlanta Falcons. He also played for the San Francisco 49ers and the Washington Redskins. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing great, Ken, and so glad to be here with you. This is this is exciting and fun, and I can't wait to to dig deeper into our discussion. It's gonna be so good. It's it's really a privilege to have you on, uh, not just because you know you play the NFL, but because you have such great insight into what it means to be a Christian athlete. I'm just really excited for our time today, as we're going to be discussing what it means to be a Christian athlete in pro sports. Uh, but first. Can you give all the listeners an overview of your career as an athlete? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio as a three-sport star. I played basketball, football, and of course I did a little bit of track on the side. And I never would have thought that my life was going to end up the way it ended up because I just love playing sports. It was it was one of those things where sports is what kept me doing well in school and what doing well in school kept me wanting to play on the on the field or the court or around the track. It was just, it was something to do. And, it, and, and, and for some reason, God blessed me with a very large body and, and the ability to run fast and throw things far and to, to have a lot of fun. And so the, my life experience with sports kind of started way back then. And, and as I was leaving high school, I was offered the question by my high school football coach. Um, he said, Hey, Joe, what do you want to do in college? I've got college coaches calling me. Do you want to play football or do you want to play basketball and I kind of looked at him and I was like what do you mean like that's just like there's people really questioning that I was like can I do both and he's like well you can't really do both but you can but but what do you think like what and I asked him I said coach well you tell me what do you think and he said Joe you're a six foot five inch white man he said there's not a lot of those playing in the NBA but you have the body to be a great football player someday mm. and I said well I guess coach I guess that answers my question and so through his guidance and through some other conversations just about, um, you know, where I was and what I was doing, you know, and I was a decent high school basketball player. I was good, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't jumping out of the gym. I wasn't slam dunking. I couldn't hit the three very regularly, but I gave high effort and had a lot of fun. But football was one of those things that just came really easy. And so I told coach, sure, I'd love to go to college and play college football. And at that point, you know, offers started flooding in and I found my way. Leaving uh, Cleveland, Ohio, it was minus six degrees, and I showed up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and it was 65, 70 degrees that day, and I fell in love. <laughs> and I went and spent my five years of college. That's right, Ken, five years, not four, five years of college at Wake Forest <laughs> University. And wh when I went there, I wondered the pretense that, hey, number one, this is a great academic school. I'm going to get a fabulous education. I'm going to learn more than I could possibly ever know. This is the Harvard of the South. Like There is not a better academic school around, great liberal arts education. And I'm going to get the chance to build a national championship. I'm going to get the chance to build something that has never been there because Wake Forest had been a perennial kind of a homecoming game for most other teams that, that they played, you know. And, and unfortunately for me, I went there and in the five years I went there, I think I won a total of about six games in oh. five years. That's right. Six in five years, um, which didn't turn out necessarily like I wanted it to. Made some great lifelong friends, had a lot of fun playing the game, learned a lot, graduated with a degree in history, um, which was fantastic. But what I didn't know is that because we were so bad on the football field, this little side hustle that I was doing, which was long snapping, which was really just a way for me to get on the field and play, really just another way for me to, 
to spend another snap, another down on the field, because that's all I wanted to do in college was to play as much football as I could because I loved it. What I didn't know is that by being so bad in college, I got really good at long snapping because there were games where I had more punts than I had plays as a starting tight end, um, which was hilarious to me. Um, but I loved it. I loved being able to snap. I loved being out there taking care of the kickers. I, I just loved it. And I, and I didn't realize that that, that was going to parlay itself into a career that was going to last, you know, the majority of my adult life so far. Um, and so as I was graduating college, I figured football was done. I went and got a dog from a, from the shelter, uh, from the Humane Society, because I figured I needed somebody to roll around in the grass with. And about that time, people started, you know, hey, you could maybe do this in the NFL. And of course, when somebody says that to you and you're just a, you know, a good college football player, you kind of look around and go, no, I can't do this in the NFL. I'm not an NFL tight end. There's no way. And they're like, no, you could be a long snapper. Like nobody hires a long snapper. Those are great. I mean, you're talking guys like, you know, John Randall and, and Steve Young and Jerry Rice and, and, and just these, these perennial greats that have, that have been and, and that are now in the Hall of Fame. You're, you're talking guys like that. And you're including me in that group. And people are like, yeah. And so I didn't really buy into it. I didn't really listen to that noise. Um, and my roommate, who was the punter at Wake Forest, he decided that he wanted to play in the NFL. And so he sent out videotapes of himself. This was way back in the day before internet, before Max Preps, before Twitter, before Instagram, before all that stuff where coaches find players these days. My, my, my good friend, uh, Tripp, sent out videotapes of himself to all 31 NFL teams. Um, and like, hey, here's my highlights. Here's, here's what I'd, I'd love to be able to come punt for you in the NFL. And after about two weeks, somehow or another, one of his videotapes found its way in front of the San Francisco 49ers. And so they gave him a call and they said, hey, Tripp, we want to come work you out. But the caveat for us coming to work you out is whoever's snapping you the ball needs to be at this workout. And so Tripp yells down to me. He's like, Joe, we got the 49ers on the phone. I got a workout next Tuesday. Bro, can you be out there? They want you to come snap me the ball. I guess they want to see me catch it. And I said, sure. I figured I was doing my buddy a solid. And so I go out for this workout with my good buddy Tripp and we're standing there and, and the entire workout the special teams coach from the 49ers is standing directly in front of me as a long snapper, watching trip punt, watching me snap. And the whole time he's talking to me, he's like, can you do this? Can you put this here? Now try this. How about this? Can you move here? Can you do this? And he keeps asking me to do all these things. And I'm like, this is a workout for trip. And you're asking me, I figured he was just, you know, making small talk Biden time. I'm kind of a, an outgoing personality. I, I like to talk to people. I like to tell stories. And I figured he was just kind of, you know, the same kind of person. We kind of uh, connected on that level. Mm -hmm. And so we go through this hour long workout together. And as we're walking off the field, again, I'm thinking I'm just doing my good buddy a favor. And as we're walking off the field, this coach grabs me by the shoulder and he squeezes it real tight and pulls me in close to him. And he says, listen, on draft day, keep your phone lines open because we're going to pick you up. Now, if I can wow. tell you anything in this podcast and you want to take anything home from this podcast, you need to take this home. Number one, when you hear something from a coach like that, you automatically believe it is a lie because every coach everywhere, I love them to death. They have built me into the man that I am today, but every coach is a used car salesman. They <laughs> will tell you what you want to hear to your face and then behind your back, they'll, they'll trash you. That's just, that's just the nature of the business, the nature of the beast. And so I knew that. And so when he said that to me, I was like, come on, coach, you can't move the wheels of the NFL like that. You're not taking somebody like me. And so I completely almost ignored it. Well, come draft day, I'm sitting there in my, in my apartment in college writing a criminology paper and the draft's on in the background because what do you do as a college senior and, you, you know, the draft's going on, you put it on, you love sports, you watch, you watch paint dry, which is the NFL draft. And so the draft's on in the background and about the fourth round, I got a phone call. It was this special teams coach. Hey, Joe, has anybody called you? No, 
nobody's called me. My mom called a little bit ago, but like, I don't know what you're, you're asking. He goes, okay, well just keep your phone lines open because we're going to pick you up. I'm like, you're not like, this isn't going to happen. Like there's no possible way. Well, so the fourth round they called, they called back in the sixth round. Hey, has anybody called you? You guys called, you guys called about two rounds ago. Okay, good. Just making sure, just making sure nobody's calling you. Nobody's calling you. So the draft ends, and literally within two seconds of them announcing Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick of the draft, my phone call, my phone rings again. And this time it's Steve Mariucci, who's the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. He says, Joe, we're picking you up as a, as a free agent, a college free agent. We're sending you a contract. We're sending you a signing bonus. We want you to fly out this weekend to come to our mini camp. We want you to be a 49er. So in a matter of seconds, I went from thinking I had no career in the NFL to having a contract mailed to me the next day, showed up DHL or FedEx or one of those overnight things. And there in the packet is the, all the information. There's a hat, there's, there's tickets, airline tickets, the whole thing. This is back in the day, right? No cell phones, none of that crazy stuff. Um, and so I went and got on a plane. And now the crazy thing, Ken, is that when I went and got on that plane, I had two jobs that I had lined up that I was actually in the final interview for, for like the third, the third or the fourth interview for these two jobs in Winston-Salem. Uh, or in North Carolina, one was a lumber company, another one was a tech company. And I was interviewing to, you know, sales or, you know, work in their marketing department, one of those kind of things. And I was in that final interview trying to decide, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to do this? Or am I going to do that? Am I gonna... And all of a sudden I had to make these phone calls to these companies. And I had to tell them, hey, listen, there's this dream that I've had since I was a little boy to play in the NFL. I'm going to go chase it for a little bit. Um, would you mind if you just kept my phone number, just kept me kind of in your Rolodex? And now that my NFL career is over, I wonder if they still have my name. I could probably call them. You know, everybody needs a job. Um, And so they probably don't at this point. So I left and went out there and uh, spent my first season in San Francisco, played for the 49ers for my first year, never unpacked my suitcase um, because there was always that fear of uh, the NFL being exactly what it stands for. The NFL doesn't stand for National Football League. It stands for not for long. And so my thought process was at any possible time, they're going to let me go. I'm going to be on the next flight out, um, which was crazy because in, in, in the moment when you're doing all this, you're, you're so caught up in the action of the game and the, and the players. And I'm out there in the locker room and there's Jerry Rice and there's Steve Young and, and there's, you know, there's, there's Merton Hanks and there's Ken Norton Jr. And, and like you're in the whirlwind of Terrell Owens and you're like, holy cow, I am actually out here doing this and living this dream. And so I, I never, never imagined that, that I was going to make it past one season. I never imagined I was going to make it past one game. Um, so I never unpacked my suitcase. At the end of that season, I only signed a one-year contract. Um, I got traded because I re-signed with the 49ers at the end of that season. I re-signed um, with them, and I got traded to the Washington Redskins, now the Washington football team. Um, but I played underneath the Redskins moniker, so I'll stick with that. Hopefully this is not, you know, you're not going to bash me for that, but that's what I played under. So I played for the Washington Redskins for a year, and and um, again, didn't think much of it. And, and during that summer, I got married to my wife. And so we moved to Virginia, Northern Virginia, and we, we made Washington our home or Washington, D.C. our home, um, which was fantastic. That first year of marriage, that, that second NFL season was fantastic. But that was the year that the Washington Redskins had guys like Deion Sanders and Bruce Smith and Daryl Green. We, we had like stocked the team and we were the perennial favorites to win the Super Bowl. Well, it didn't turn out like that. And about halfway through the season, Coach Norv Turner got fired. And then when a coach gets fired in the NFL, things seem to follow after that. When a coach gets fired, players get cut pretty soon after that. Um, and so as I was traded over there, at the end of that season, I went on a cruise thinking everything was fine and dandy. They had just fired Norv Turner. They fired Norv Turner halfway through the season. But I went on a cruise after the season with some friends and 
another guy on the team. And, and, and I got a weird feeling in my gut when I was on this cruise. And I was like, this is weird. And so I go to my, my state room with, with my wife and I was like, I don't feel real good. I think something happened. Um, I don't know what it was, but I'm going to go back to the room. And so I go back to the room and turn on the, 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 the ship TV and get to the ESPN channel. And the minute I get there, my name scrolls across the screen. Joe Zelenka released by the Washington Redskins. So here I was in the middle of the ocean, not able to call anybody, not able to get in touch with anybody, not able to figure out why, but the new head coach um, did not need my services. And so I was without a job. And so for about six months, I sat on the street and didn't have any NFL experience, no real contact, no one really calling me. Um, and then eventually, about halfway through training camp, the Jacksonville Jaguars called me. And they said, hey, Joe, we loved what you did in Washington. We, we just want you to come in. We drafted a guy as a long snapper. Um, we want you to come in. We just want to get you on film. We're not really happy with how he's performing right now. Uh, we just want you to come in. And we just want to get a look at you to see where you are. And so I show up in Jacksonville, figured I was here for one night. And so I packed an overnight bag, got on a plane out of, out of Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., arrived here in Jacksonville, went out for a workout the next day, figured I was going to be here one night, Ken, one night, one night alone. Right? I had one change of clothes. And so I finished this workout with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And like I said, I thought I was just there for a, a look-see. And as I'm walking back in after this workout, Tom Coughlin, who was out there for the entire, uh, my entire little you know, hour-long workout, turns to me, yells, me, yells at me from down the hallway, hey, you're going to be here for this afternoon's practice, right? And I was like, what? We're going to sign you. We want to sign you, and, and, and we want you to come in and compete for this job. Hmm. And I looked at Tom Coughlin. And I said, Coach, can I call my wife and just check it with her? I mean, and, and I don't have any clothes. Like, you literally are seeing, like, my entire wardrobe right now. This is what I brought with me. I didn't think I was staying here this long. And so Tom said, no, no, we'll take care of you. We'll make sure you've got clothes. We'll give you clothes in the equipment room. We'll get you a suit, whatever you need. We want to sign you. We want you this afternoon. Well, that one-day trip, supposed one-day trip, turned out to be eight years that I was here in Jacksonville. Um, and so I played 10 years in the NFL and I figured my NFL career was beginning to wind down because when you start getting to double digits in your, you know, in your career total, you, you become a little bit expensive and um, teams begin to try to figure out ways to save money, uh, just like in the corporate world. And so I became a cap hit that year and I got released in my 10th season from Jacksonville. And, and I figured, again, my career was over. But uh, about halfway through that season, the Atlanta Falcons called me and brought me in for a, a workout and a tryout, and signed me to a contract. And I spent my last three years in up in Atlanta and it was fantastic. And, and so that's the, the story of my NFL saga. It was a little long winded and I apologize for all the listeners out there. Um, but hopefully there was something in there that you kind of can piece together. No. Yeah, that was, that's a crazy story, but it's, it's just the fact that you packed in a bag for one night and stayed eight years later. That's just one that's just, night, eight years. When I see the crate, like I showed up in Jacksonville, with one bag, one change of clothes, one pair of shoes. When I left Jacksonville eight years later, I had twins. Um, I had a wife. I had a hat. Like it was just crazy. The amount of growing that happened in those eight years it was mm. fantastic. That's awesome to hear how God works like that. Uh, going back to, a, you know, your NFL dream that you had as a kid, what drove you to want to play in the NFL? Was that, was that because of that dream or did you just, you know, was a big fan of football and playing football? I just loved football. I loved everything about it. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the fellowship. I loved the brotherhood, the esprit de corps. I loved the, the, the smell of the grass. I loved the, the uniforms and the helmets and just the pageantry that goes along with it. I loved everything about football. Um, there wasn't one thing about football that I did not. I like training camp, which is crazy to say. Um, and for me, as, as my career went on, it became 
less about the game and more about the relationships that you could build in the game. And that, that, that going out into on, onto a field and, you know, struggling and fighting with guys mm. and, you know, the laughter and the jokes. Um, that's, that's what I miss most about being away from the game is that side of it. Mm. Uh, and of course the paychecks you miss too, but you know, what, what drove me to do it? I don't know if anything drove me to do it. Like this was a, this was a God thing from step one. It was just something that I love to do and God kind of blessed it along the way. And, and I mean, even as you heard my story, like it, it had really nothing to do with, with me and me being the best and the greatest and the shiniest. And, and, you know, I, I just used what talents God had given me to the best of my ability to try to find a, a, a way to continue to play this game, to glorify him. Um, my prayer all the time was, was allow the way I play to be my prayer unto you, God, allow it to be the, my, my, the way I play, the way I reflect, the way I move, the way I, the way I use what you've given me, allow it to glorify you in every last thing. Allow this game, this practice to be my prayer, allow it to be my song to you. And that was my hope. That was my, that was my only real desire out there as I was playing. And of course you get kind of caught up in the, in, in the mess of life and in the sinfulness of life as, as you kind of do that in your own selfishness and your own pride begins to say, well, I've worked and I've done. And, and you, you know, when things are a little bit rough, you're like, God, I, I put in all this effort for you and won't you meet me halfway and, and those kind of things. So like, I'm not trying to paint a, a too rosy picture because it's really messy at the end of the day, but none of this, none of my NFL experience had anything to do with me. It was all by the grace and the glory of God for the, by the grace and for the glory of God. Um, because if it was up to me, I would have never made it. It's, it's like everything in life, not even just sports, just God works in such insane, just mysterious ways because I mean, he, he can do that. He's all encompassing and he, I mean, people are more talented than you. They have a better image or, you know, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, his will is going to triumph over anything else. And see, and, and that's one of those things we seem to forget, even as Christians, we forget that God is in charge of everything. If he is the sovereign Lord of all, the creator and the sustainer of all things, what do I have to worry about? That doesn't like take me off the hook for effort and trying and, and believing and moving and, and following. But man, like we put so much pressure upon ourselves that we have to do this, uh, that we have to get this done, that we've got to do. And, and should we put effort in? Absolutely. But when we when we take so much worry and concern and that, that, that encompasses every aspect of life from the way we study to the way we do things. Yeah. Put all that effort in, but then let it go and trust and believe in God. Um, believe that, you know, he's going to take you. He, and the crazy thing is, is he has us exactly where we're supposed to be and wherever we are, top of the mountain or the bottom of the valley, we're there to glorify God. Has your, has your Christian beliefs changed the way you view sports in any way? Oh my goodness. One hundred and ten percent. Oh, it is it is crazy how, you know, just being a part of athletics impacted not only the way I played, but also what I believe. And and, and the crazy thing is that it's biblically based too, because you got guys like Paul who are writing things that are very much athletic oriented, right? Paul writes about the race, run the race, the race of endurance. He talks about putting on armor. He's he's very, you know, tangible and grasping. It's very graspable ideas for, for a, a knucklehead football player like me to, to understand scripture and to understand, you know, belief and those kind of things. And so, yeah, absolutely. My Christian faith affected the way I played. The way I played affected my Christian faith. And there was growth in the middle of it. See, because, Ken, when I started playing, I thought that it was under the, the, the idea and the pretense that if I do all these things for God, God's going to bless me. 
that if I am behaving and following all the rules, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm doing all the workouts, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm eating right, if I'm, if I'm, you know, faithful to my wife, if I'm doing all of these things, you know, kind of a quid pro quo relationship that God, you're going to do this for me. Right. And there were countless times, not countless, but there were times in my career, especially in the NFL, when those words would actually come out of my mouth. Mm. You know, God, I've done so much for you. Will you not bless me in this moment? Will you, won't you keep me on this team? And the crazy thing is, is in the middle of that, that kind of quid pro quo relationship that we all can fall into as Christians, the gospel interrupted me 110%. It completely interrupted me. That gospel of grace, that gospel of the free gift of God's grace that I could do nothing to earn, I can do nothing to keep, that I did nothing to even have the knowledge of interrupted me in the middle of it. And it was this beautiful moment in my career, probably around year eight, nine, ten. I don't know the exact date, but it was like it was a reawakening. And it was this this me coming alive to the fact that, holy cow, that you love me no matter how I play. That you love me no matter what I do. And not because of me, but because of what you have done for me, because you loved me that much. Mm-hmm. You know, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me and for you. And so so as I was kind of coming alive to that, you know, and it was something that had, had always kind of stirred in the bottom of my belly and stirred in the bottom of my heart, you know, um, that, that I, I so badly wanted to believe that. But somewhere in the middle of it, I began to believe that I could control what I could do. And that if I followed the rules just well enough, God would bless me. And so I was interrupted by the gospel. Um, and it was this beautiful moment um, in my career. And it, and it changed everything. It changed the way I played. It changed the way I laughed. It changed the way I associated with people on and off the field. And it was this beautiful moment to go, I don't deserve any of this. And this is all from you, God. This is all a gift from you. Everything that I have from my wife to my children, to my career, to my health, this body. I didn't do anything to get my, you know, six foot, five inch body. God gave me that. It's a gift from him. And so it, it opened my eyes to some, some really heavy truth um, that I think I needed to hear in that moment. And, and see, the NFL is not only, not only stands for not for long, but it, it really is a place that's devoid of the gospel. Mm. The NFL is completely like, and, and I think athletics in general are completely devoid of the gospel um, because we define ourselves by how we play. We define ourselves by what is shown upon the scoreboard. If the scoreboard says that we win, then we did well. If the stat line says that we win or we outrushed or out-tackled or outscored our opponent, we are the ones who are blessed. And the gospel says the exact opposite, that it's not because of our actions. It's actually in spite of our actions that we're blessed. And so to, to live in a world that is constantly evaluating, constantly you know, looking at and constantly, you know, critiquing every single thing that you do from your diet to your clothes, to your weight. I mean, to, the, to how you practice, to how you play constant, this constant evaluation. I had the, the beauty of the gospel poured into it. The beauty of, I am loved in spite of these things. Mm. And again, when, when, when that, when, when those two worlds collide, it's, it's nuclear and, it, and it's freeing. And there's this freedom that I could play with in those last five years of my career, this freedom and this joy that I could play with were, God, I'm just going to play as long as you let me play. And when it's over, I'll find the next thing that you want me to do. And I'll do that with all my heart as well, because I know you're going to open doors. You are a good, good father who takes care of his children. And I know you're going to take care of me. And if you don't, 
if, if it looks like you aren't, aren't taking care of me, I can trust and know that my hope isn't in this world, that my hope is otherworldly, that my hope is in you. My hope is in an everlasting life. And so there's just, it was, it was absolutely one of those, those moments where I, I went from defining myself and, and, and recognizing myself and identifying myself by what was on the scoreboard and what was on the field to all of a sudden defining myself and recognizing myself by what happened on a hill in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And it changed everything. I mean, Jesus changed everything. Going back to what you said about how we can make sports so legalistic and our relationship with God even legalistic, like the Pharisees in the, in the gospel, they had the Savior, they had Jesus right in front of them, but they missed the entire point. Because they were so focused on, oh, if I do this and this and this, then I will be in God's favor. But in reality, it's I, I'm a sinner and there's nothing I could do to get to heaven. And I can't live by these laws. So therefore, I'm eternally damned to hell. But Jesus was right there and he was their savior all along. Like they just completely missed it. I think so many people nowadays, they miss that too. Because like you were saying, you audibly say, God. I did this. Why can't you do this for me? And I found myself all the time thinking that, and that's not how it works all, at all because he, he doesn't owe us anything. There's nothing you could say yeah. to him to get him to give you what you want. It's all in his will. It's all in his favor. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, you saying that reminds me of that uh, beautiful chapter from John's gospel, John chapter three, where Nicodemus comes and meets Jesus in the middle of the night. And he says, you know, you must be a prophet from God because no one could do the things you do unless he's from God. And Jesus immediately interrupts him and kind of goes, you know, he says, amen, amen, I say to you, you know, one can't see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Like, Jesus, weren't you into the conversation? Like, you hear this story, but Nicodemus, who's the, the Pharisee, the Pharisee, you know, he's the on the Sanhedrin. He's the, the knowledgeable. He knows the law better than anybody. He knows scripture better than you and I. I mean, he memorized it. He had it put into his brain. He didn't see it. Mm. And the reality is, is, I think many of us today, even in our churches, we don't see it. We don't see it and we don't understand it. Um, we don't really get the idea of that free gift from God, that Jesus is who he says he is. And if that's who he says he is, then it requires me to not only bend my knee, but to follow every single thing that he says. Right? If, if he says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world, you know, all who follow me will not walk in darkness. You know, it's, it's one of those things, Ken, where, where, where we're called, we're commanded by our king. If he says something, we should do it without question. We should do it without, without hesitation. We should do it without grumbling or rolling our eyes. We should do it. Yes, I get to do this. You told me, king, I will do it for you. I will follow you. Um, it's crazy. I think that a lot of times there's, there's so many Christians in this world that make a profession of faith. They say they believe, but they never actually possess that faith. And there's, there's that, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's not a fine line. It's a very hard line in that. You can profess it all you want, but unless you possess it, unless you become it, unless you start doing it, did your profession really mean anything? I can, I can profess that I am married to my wife, but unless I act like it, unless I possess that, unless I live my life as a married man, am I really married? I can tell everybody in the world I'm married, but, but you never go home to her. You never hold her hand. You never kiss her. You never spend time with her. You, you never forsake all others because of, well, am I really married? And I think a lot of us take our faith that way. Then we make this profession of faith. We made a profession one time. I told God I was a sinner. I needed him in my heart. Well, that's fantastic. And I love that you've done that. 
but now you need to possess. Now you need to follow. And I think it's one of those things where, where people say to, you know, and, and it's the cliche that goes out there, you know, when you, if, as a believer, when we don't feel close to God, who moved, mm. right? When we don't feel close to God, who moved? And, and the answer is always, well, it's got to be me. Right. But the reality is, is, is that maybe it was God that moved. Because the last time I checked, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, all those who follow me will walk in the light, right? And, and so it's one of those things where maybe God's moved. Maybe God is moving somewhere and you decided to stay in your own darkness. You decided to stay in your own sin. You decided to stay here and you didn't want to follow for whatever reason. Mm. And I think we're called not only as athletes, but as men and as women, as, as students, as businessmen, as, as, as anybody who's listening to this podcast, you're called to not just be a Christian by profession, but be a Christian by possession, that yeah. you are going to live this out each and every day. And sometimes it hurts, sometimes it sucks, sometimes it's hard. But at the end of it, we have the hope and the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we need to be men and women who love one another and care for one another and laugh with one another um, and cry with one another because we had a Savior who did all those things for us and with us. Exactly. Um, and if he's our king, we've got to start acting like it. And that's just like, I'll get off my soapbox now and get, from, get out from behind the pulpit. I didn't mean to go to go all like, you know, scriptural on you there, you know, but, but listen, like that's the, the, that's one of those things where I see it not only in the athletic world, I see it with coaches, I see it with players, but I see it with businessmen. I see it with moms. I see it with, with, you know, lawyers and doctors. I see them defining themselves by what they do, not who they are. And as Christians, we need to define ourselves by who we are. I see them making proclamations, but there's no possession. We need to possess our faith. We need to live it out each and every day. Mm. And that's hard. It's hard to do that. And, and I think that's why Paul reminds us in Ephesians, you know, to put on the armor of God daily, to dress ourselves in that gospel, right? And, and, and I think it's one of those things that we need to, we need to wake up every morning and, and reteach ourselves the gospel because I go to bed at night. We could spend the rest of the day. You and I sit here talking about the gospel, sharing the gospel, going through scripture, having the time of our life. But the minute we go to bed, all of that gospel knowledge leaks out of us. And I wake up in the morning like Cinderella who lost her, like Cinderella with an amnesia. Like, I, I think there was something, but you know what? I don't really, I didn't really go to the ball last night, but the king, the prince didn't really dance with me. And I'm not going to, I'm going to forget about that. And I'm going to run back to my darkness because scripture tells us that men love the darkness. We like mm. our, we like our sinfulness. So every morning we're called to reteach ourselves the gospel, to remind ourselves what was done for us and who did it for us and the, the intricacies that go with that and the details that go with that. It's an everyday adventure and it's, and it's an everyday joyful burden to carry that we yeah. get to do this. And the best part is kind of when we forget, when we screw it up, when we mess it up, when we don't love well, when we don't laugh well, when we don't spend as the gospel calls us to spend, when we're, when we're running back to our sin, the best news, the greatest news that we have as believers is that we have a good father. That when we run to him and we, we cry out for forgiveness and we cry out for mercy, what is he quick to do? He's quick to forgive us. Mm -hmm. He's quick to welcome us back home. He's quick to, to put the ring on our finger and the cloak around our neck and say, kill the fatted calf because my son again is home. Like, what better offer could we do we have? It's beautiful. So good. Do you think it's more difficult to live out that faith as a professional athlete? But just because, you know, due to the, you know, raw emotions you you get 
on the field and the pressure that you feel. I mean, in the NFL, it's cranked up to a million, you know, how, how, how did you go about that in your faith? Yeah, the, the volume's really turned up. Um, you, you've got to surround yourself. And, and listen, the, the NFL's not, we're, we're not a, we're not a bubble. Um, everyone experiences this. Every Christian who's really trying to live out their faith daily, you know, we experience this. Um, and, and we can become so entrapped with, you know, the pressures to be the perfect mom or to be the perfect husband or be the perfect father or be the perfect student to be, you know, it, it, it envelops us all. And so the NFL, yes, is it, is it a little bit more than maybe for some people, but the reality is, is that we all struggle with this. And I think the, the, the good news is, is that we have brothers and sisters who we can surround ourselves with. We have a, we have a living, breathing book of the Bible that we need to bury ourselves into. Um, and so, yeah, was it hard in the NFL? Absolutely. I told you it was a gospel, this world, it was a world where every ounce of everything was telling me I am defined by how I perform today, by what I said, what I did, how I practiced, how, how that last snap went, you know? Um, and I had to remind myself, I had to coach myself. I had to preach to myself and have others around me preaching to me that gospel, that gospel that, that, that is and was and forever will be true. And I think that's that's a call for all of us that we need to surround ourselves with men and women who can who can call, um, you know, who, who can speak truth into our light, who bring who bring, you know, good news into our lives each day. Um, we, we need those brothers and sisters to help us carry our burden. You know, the, the crazy thing is, is a, a few years or not a few years, the, the year that I was released from the Falcons, my last year in the NFL, um, that fall was hard on me. You know, my identity was rooted and based. Although I didn't, I fought against it so hard. It was still rooted and based as a football player. I was an NFL football player. And now I was an, a, an old NFL football player without a team. And so that first season where I was completely done playing, it was real hard on me emotionally because my, although I had fought against it, like I said, my identity was still, I am the NFL football player. That's how people knew me. That's how people recognized me. And so for the first time in my life that fall, I was without a team. I was without a job. I was without that moniker, that shield of the NFL preceding me and all that I did. And it was the most precious year or, or six months of my life. Um, I got to spend it with a newborn baby each and every day. I got to spend time with my father and my father-in-law. And see, so God took that time and allowed me to, to do all this and, and, to, and to have a moment to kind of to, to, to step away and, and to let me realize that I'm not defined by that shield. All that might be the way the world sees me. That's not the way my father sees me. And, you know, Ken, the, the crazy thing was, is that that fall, I spent multiple weeks with my father. And in December of that fall, my father passed away unexpectedly in his sleep. Hmm. And as I sat there planning this funeral with my mom and my brother and sister, um, I was charged with the task of finding pallbearers for my father. My dad was a great man. He, he lived a, a very faithful life. But as I sat there and went through the, the list of people to try to figure out who could help me carry him something occurred to me who could help me carry the casket. Something occurred to me. And it made me realize that the men who carry us in death need to be the same ones who carry us in life, that we need to have five, six, eight, three, seven brothers and sisters who we can run to, who we can be real with, who will be real with us. And my dad didn't have that. He had one. And so like I had to go to uncles and, you know, brothers and work associates. I had to find... But it made me realize that I need to welcome men into my life. I need to, I need to begin to build friendships with men that go deeper than just a game of football, that go deeper than just a conversation about the weather or the price of gas or who's, the next, who's going to be the next president. 
I need to go deeper. I need to have men in my life who will speak truth to me, men who I can speak truth to, men who I can be real with and honest with, and men who will love me not for who I am, but love me for whose I am mm-hmm. and to share this burden with me. And I think, that, you know, in the NFL, I, I wish I had more of that. I had some really great friends and I had friends that, you know, I connected with and friends that I still talk to today. I, I wish I wish I could have been more of that type of friend to guys in the NFL than I was. I wish I could have had more of those types of friends than I had. Um, you know, it was it was one of those things where, you know, I, I got close to chaplains on each team that I was on because it was the few relationships where you could really kind of share your heart and share to them like, hey, man, I'm struggling right now. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with this. Or I'm, I just don't believe or I don't know. And I'm, you know, things are hard at home and this and that. that I could actually be real. And the problem is, is in athletics, we get so caught up in the game. We get so caught up in the sport that we, we forego those, those, you know, blessed relationships that are around us to really kind of draw near and, and really kind of grasp hold of each other. Um, but luckily, God blessed me with some great friends there and some people that I could really talk to and share with and be open with. Um, and it's, it's, there's, there's a sense of vulnerability in that moment too, right, Ken? We're, for us to share our sin, to share our brokenness. But, when we say we're a Christian, what are we really saying to the world? Right? We're saying that we are broken, that we are a sinner, that we there is nothing that I can do to save myself, that I actually need a supernatural and alien power to save me. And I am admitting that. I'm admitting that I'm a murderer and I'm an adulterer and I'm all of these things right down the line. That's what we say to the world when we say we're a Christian. It doesn't say we're perfect. It says that we're, we're not perfect. And I think for us to be able, especially as men, to be able to share that brokenness with others, there's a sense of vulnerability, but there's also that sense of, of, of freedom and truth and, 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 and beauty that exists only within the gospel, that I'm not defined by this. I'm loved in spite of this. Mm, that's so good. I, when I first came to the faith, I thought, it was, I thought you needed to figure, out, figure it out by yourself with you know, no community and nothing, nothing that can penetrate you from the outside. But in reality, God calls us to a community because that's a good community, I should say, because you need, like you were saying, brothers and sisters around you that push you to God constantly. Was there, in the NFL, was there anybody that influenced you like that? Oh my gosh, I had you know countless guys. Um, one in very particular, Kyle Brady. Um, my first year here in Jacksonville, I played um, that first season and then the offseason, you know, teams want you to hang out for for the off-season workouts, OTAs, organized team activities, which is really just practice, right? Don't 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 believe the hype. Um, they're not. It's not like we're organizing team activities where we're going to the zoo or we're going to museums. No, we're out there practicing football. So they wanted me to stay for that. And of course, I still own my house up in Virginia. And I was like, well, I'm just going to stay in a hotel for OTAs. Well, Kyle Brady said, hey, listen, I've got a hole upstairs at my house. I would love to have you come stay with me. And I went and lived with Kyle for that for that off-season for probably three months. And every night we would stay up and, and just out of just conversation, we'd talk theology. We would talk about scripture. We'd talk about the Bible. We'd talk about these big questions in life. And it was one of these moments where, Kyle, I can, I can point to you today, and I've actually told him face-to-face. I told him and said, listen, you're the reason why I'm in seminary. You're the reason why I'm, why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's because of those conversations, because of you, Kyle, that I am, that I want to know more and that I want to dig in more. And it was just this natural organic thing that just two brothers who played a game together who could, you know, share and be open and be broken and, and share the truth of scripture with one another and to dig into it together and to search for answers and to search for truth. 
and the search for Christ hidden within the world and the, the beauty of the gospel. Um, it was one of those, those precious, precious moments. And he, I don't know if he'll, if he ever listens to this, Kyle, if you're listening to this, that's awesome. Um, but there was one moment, there was one moment between Kyle and I that, that really, I don't want to say defined anything or defined everything, but it was one of these moments that, that is kind of like that, that older gate experience for me, that, that, that moment where it kind of clicked into my brain and it was outside of me. So we're in the weight room one day and we're lifting weights and we're, we're, we're pumping iron. Of course, you know, big, strong football players pumping iron. And Kyle, being Kyle, who he is very outspoken about his faith, very out in front about everything, he was kind of walking around the, the, the weight room with the strength coach, who was also a believer, kind of asking questions of guys, just kind of just gauging the temperature of the room. And so he walked up to me in the weight room and he walked up to me and he said, Joe, if you were to die right now, what would you say to God to let you into heaven? What would you say? What would be your answer to say to get God to let you into heaven? Mm. And can I promise you this answer did not come from inside me. It came from outside of me. And it came so quickly out of my mouth that it wasn't me saying the words. And I said to him, Kyle, I said, I couldn't say anything. I would merely point to Jesus because he's the only reason why I should ever be led to heaven. Amen. And that was one of those defining moments of like my faith, like actually becoming a tangible reality. I needed somebody to ask me that hard question that we kind of know the answer to, but he kind of he caught me off guard. And I think if, if he would have asked me a month ago or two years ago or, or three years before that, I might have answered it a lot differently. And I said, well, listen, I have faith and I believe and I'm, I'm in it. But the reality is, is even my faith isn't my own. It comes from him. You know, that, that there's a conversation in scripture where Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he says, hey, Peter, who, who do people say that I am? And Simon says, well, some people say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And Jesus says, okay, but now, Peter, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter answers him, oh, my gosh, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. And most people stop the story right there, like because Peter admits it. But there's a, there's a little line right after that where Jesus looks at, at, at Simon Peter and he goes, Simon bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. No one could have told you this. Flesh and blood didn't come up with this. You only got this knowledge from my heavenly fathers, only because he told you this, that you know this. Mm. And so even my faith, even if I was to answer that question from Kyle, well, my faith, I believe. That faith isn't even mine. So when I said to him, I have nothing to even say. I can only point at Christ and say my hope resides in him. But we need friends like that who are willing to ask us those hard questions, who are willing to sit with us in those hard moments, who are willing to, to hear our stories and to hear our laments and to, to hold us when we cry and laugh with us when we laugh. Um, we need those kind of friends. And like in a world today where we have social media, and, you know, and, and, and everybody has 8 billion friends on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and we're constantly looking for followers, we want people to follow us. The reality is, is I think we need to drop the phones for a minute. and We need to start connecting face to face. You know, we need to start reconnecting as, you know, a, a church body. You know, a lot of people go to church, with, but what, what believers fail to realize is that we don't go to church. We are the church. And yeah. We should be connecting with each other. We should be finding each other. We should be seeking each other out. And listen, we can, we can argue about theology and we can, you know, baptism by immersion, baptism by sprinkle, right? Pado, baptism. We can, we can get in all the semantics, but the reality is, is do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And, that's, right. and if the answer is yes, we'll get, get, like, get down to the mere Christianity of it. We need to find those brothers and sisters and they might be from a different denomination or a different, you know, they might believe a little bit something. It might be a little more charismatic or a little bit more traditional. We need to find those guys and connect with them because they're not brothers and sisters. We need to be willing to share and be open and to have hard conversations 
And then to live this life with such joy and such passion and such hope that people look at us and go, dude, what's so different about you? Mm -hmm. Right? And then we have an answer. I hope doesn't reside in this world. It's not in constitutions or in vaccines or in, even in my own money. I hope resides in heaven. And it's in the name and face of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. And so like, and when we pull all that into, into, into the sports world, like, man, we, we've gone so far off of like, sports is just a little microcosm to life, bro. Like, it's just, you get people together who are striving for a common thing. And, and, you know, the sports teams are very much like, you know, very much kind of like the church, you know, you, you, you're, you're doing something together. You're, you're achieving a greater goal, but, and you're, you're bigger than the, the, the moniker on your helmet. You're, you're bonded together. And, um, as, as we play sports and as we have those relationships, we need to be willing to dig in deeper with, with our friends and, and dig in deeper and ask hard questions and be vulnerable and, and to realize that, hey, this sport is just a way for me to meet people and to know people and to, to glorify you, God. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, an, it's a way of furthering his kingdom, just you know, ministering to the people around you. But going back to something you said, when, when your friend came up to you and asked, why, why would God let you into heaven? I played college baseball at a Christian college and mm -hmm. on, on the questionnaire that my coaches send out to recruits, that's like the last question they ask all the recruits. And he says, I mean, some of the answers people give him just break his heart because their, their idea of the gospel is so clouded, so faded because it's all about what they did. If they're a good person, then they can go to heaven. But he says, there's a small portion that actually get it, that actually say it's, there's nothing that I could do, you know? It just breaks it breaks your coach's heart, and these are kids that are wanting to go play at a Christian college, there, right? right? They want to play baseball at a Christian college. Like it's it's one of those things where well, we need pastors, we need churches who are clearly defining that gospel early on, right. and they're doing it from when these kids are little, and they're continuing to do it. We need we need youth groups and and youth pastors that aren't doing gross out games, that aren't licking armpits and just trying to gather in kids. They aren't trying to just, Hey, we're out here. We're just trying to get more kids in. The more kids we get in, we can tell them the gospel. No, we need, we need youth pastors who are faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are faithfully expressing that reality, who are, who are teaching our children doctrine and, and reality and, and theology and, and, and allowing them to have a basis to go, Hey, I know why I believe what I believe. I, I really do think, I mean, if, if we can understand the intricacies of the Starbucks coffee menu, right? And, and everybody knows how to order at Starbucks. You know, I want a venti, <laughs> doubles pump. If we can understand that, we can understand theology. Mm -hmm. If we can understand how to do an NFL, you know, a fantasy football draft, and we can be the GM of a team and trades and this and that, and, and, and even how to log on and send an email or set up a Google meeting or, or start a podcast, we can understand theology. It's not a matter of, of ability. It's a matter of priority. Is it that important to you? And it goes right back to that. Are you just professing or are you possessing? If he is the king of everything and he is your Lord and personal savior, we need to start acting like it. Mm -hmm. And that starts from an early age. And we, and we need pastors who do that. We need churches who do that, who faithfully preach the gospel each and every day. Because like we talked about, Ken, we forget it. We forget it, the, the allure, the, the temptation to believe that I am something special and this all happens because of me is, is surrounds us, mm -hmm. you know, it, it never leaves us. The, 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 the great phrase from the Reformation, simul at justice at peccator, at the same time, I'm fully a saint. I'm also fully a sinner. Although I am saved by grace, there's still this sinfulness that resides within me. 
The Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 7, right? Do what I want to do, but I can't do what I don't want to do. And other than that, he's kind of this, this, this tension between him back and forth. And the only thing that resolves his tension is he cries out, who will save me from this body of death? God bless Jesus Christ, right? Jesus mm-hmm. is the only one who will save me from this. Save me from myself. And even as Christians, we need to be reminded of that each and every day. Every day. The gospel's got to be taught fresh every day. From coaches to players to schools to like and and, and it doesn't stop and I, I wish coaches would they, they desperately need to have men around them men and women around them who are reteaching the gospel and going through it again and reminding them hey you're not defined by what's done out in the field you're not defined by how many players you get to the major leagues or how many players you get to a, a p5 conference you're defined by what happened on a hill 2,000 years ago you're defined by the grace of god mm-hmm. we need coaches to hear that youth pastors to hear that we need to hear it so um and it's just yeah sports is a little microcosm to the whole thing because like i said it, it's not just not just football players or baseball players that are, get caught up in our our actions it's moms it's dads it's businessmen businesswomen it's grandmothers and grandfathers we get so caught up within ourselves you know we we, we love to stare at our own navels we get so bent in towards ourselves that, that we need the beautiful scarred hands of Jesus to cup our faces and to lift it up and to go, look, this isn't about you. This is my story that I'm writing through you. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the good news again, that while you were still a sinner, I came and died for you Amen. so that you would have everlasting life. So, I mean, I've, I've kind of gone off, but that's what you get when you talk to a, a seminary guy like myself, you get a lot of <laughs> theology and talk. So I apologize. No, yeah, it, it was that's that's an amazing answer. It's so great to you know hear a guy from the NFL that gets it. You know what I mean? I mean, you see so many guys today that are building you know their quote unquote brands and wanting wanting to provide for their family and get the most shiny cars and all this stuff. But I mean, in reality, none of that's going to satisfy them. It's only the grace of God that will. Nothing else is going to fit that hole, right? All right. So. I got one final question for you. What is, I mean, you've, you've talked about this already. What's a practical way of living out the gospel as, I mean, any listener that plays this plays sports? So uh, practical ways, anybody who's listening, you play sports, practical ways to really, but it, and it doesn't change just because you're playing sports. It's the same way you do it even when you're not playing sports. You love. You love other people. You're the first one to grab the loose ball. You're the first one at practice. You're the one who stays behind and picks up the trash. You're the one who helps set up the field and take down the field. You're the one who, who looks into the eyes of the people across the, even coaches, even as players, uh, you look into the eyes of the coach and say, coach, you don't seem like you're doing real good today. Can I pray for you? Coach, just, just want you to know that I, I, I love you. You know, it's, it's, it's loving people. It's loving others with the same love that we've been shown by Jesus. You know, scripture tells us that we are defined and we are known by how we love. And that needs to be shown by us on the field. We need to be athletes who, who play between the whistles as hard and as nasty as it needs to be. But the minute that whistle's over, we're willing to pat the other guy in the butt. We're willing to shake his hand. We're willing to smile and laugh. We're willing to say, hey, brother, I love you. You know, we, we need to be defined by how we love. And so the practical way is to love, mm-hmm. is to be the first to serve other people, to be the first, and then to be the last, to be the last one off the practice field. Um, that, is it, that, does, that, does that answer that, Ken? No, I don't yeah. know if that, like, I, I think I've, I answered it. But that, like, and again, <laughs> that applies to everybody who's listening to this. Anybody, if you're a mom, you're defined by how you love, how you love your kids, how you love your husband. 
If you're a husband, you're defined by how you love your wife, how you love your boss, how you love your job, how you love in the moments when, when you really don't want to love, right? And, and in football, there's, there's constant moments, right? You get a bad call. It's been a rough practice. You know, your girlfriend's mad at you. You've, you've, your fingers hurt and your toes, you just got your toes stepped on by a 350-pound offensive lineman. And you're like, oh, I just want to scream. And, and I got to love in these moments. I've got to be able to love. That's when after that game where you've been beaten 77 to 7, you look at the floor of the locker room and you see tape everywhere. And you go, guess what? I'm going to be the one to pick it up. Yeah. It's picking up trash in the hallways at school. It's being willing to ask hard questions and being willing to sit with people in hard moments. Um, it's just love, man. The practical way to live it out is to love as you've been loved. Yeah. Um, and so tangibly, do all those things, man. You do all those things. And that was not seeking a reward, not seeking a pat on the back, not seeking anything, but you're doing them just because you've been loved. Um, mm. And do one, you know. My son started this year, he started playing high school football. And uh, it was his first year ever playing football. And um, in the off season, we read a book called Legacy, which is 15 lessons in leadership about the, the All Blacks rugby team out of New Zealand. And one of the chapters in there is called Sweep the Shed. And so the All Blacks have this, this, this idea that, that wherever they are, whatever they are, whatever they're doing, it's always the best players on the team. They take care of the All Blacks. Like we take care of ourselves. We sweep our sheds. We pick up after ourselves. And so I kind of read this book with my two big kids who just started high school and my son's playing football. And so we go to the first football game and, um, you know, he's on the varsity team. He's not playing much. He's just gets a couple plays here and there. Um, and so after the game, my son, puts his helmet on the bench and begins to pick up Gatorade cups. And so as a dad, I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, he's in trouble. As a dad, I'm thinking, Oh no, what did he say? Did he say something to the coach? Did he not show up at time? Did he not wear the right path? I'm thinking he's being punished. Uh -huh. And so as he, as he finishes picking up the sidelines and picking up all the Gatorade cups and the cape and, and helping to put the coolers away and wheel the fans back into the shed, he walks over and I said, Hey Ben, what, what were you doing? Why were you doing that? Like, did you get in trouble? Is coach punishing you? Because you were the only one who did it. He said, no, daddy. I was sweeping the sheds. I'm just trying to love people as I've been loved. Wow. And man, the lesson I learned from my son in that moment was way greater than anything I could have possibly imagined. Mm -hmm. Here was my son tangibly and practically living out the gospel. He didn't play. They had lost. And he could have walked off the field like every other player on that team. But instead, he stopped and turned around and picked up. He loved the other players. And then, and then throughout the season, I'd have coaches kind of stop me and they'd say to, say to me, hey, your son, he is the first to serve. He's the first to help. He's the first to grab the bags. He's the first to do this. What are you saying to him? And I'd honestly and totally admit, and I admit to you and admit to all your listeners, Ken, that I didn't say anything to him. <laughs> that my son is just practically living out the gospel. Mm. He's sweeping the sheds. He's loving people. He's loving others more than he loves himself just like he's been loved. And so yeah. by the end of the season, he had 10 guys with him, 15 guys with him helping to pick up. It was beautiful to just watch how contagious that was. And so hopefully as these next three years go on, there'll be everybody on the team will start. So change the culture. So it only takes one drop to start a waterfall. That's right. Um, it takes one person to love when they're, they really don't want to, to change everything. Just like you were saying, just to let, to let God shine through you. Matthew five is a, is a great reminder that, you know, let your shine, let, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Like no matter what we do, no matter what we do, sports is, you know, included in this. 
we should live for, for God. And I think God sends reminders to us, like, like you, through your son, like through people uh-huh. and just, you know, that have, they get it. They understand that serving others and being a, a light in this dark world is so crucial yeah. for Christians. And the crazy thing was, is that we, we often think that we need to be the light, right? That I'm got, I've got to shine my light, this little light of mine. Mm. I'm going to let it shine. Like just bad theology, y'all. Like it's not my light. It's God's light that I'm reflecting. It's not my love. It's God's love that I'm reflecting. I am merely a giant reflector for God's love right. to this world. Amen. He's the source of all light. And so, you know, uh, to go live that out tangibly every day, I pray we all can do it. I pray you can do it. I, pray I, can do it. I, I love that you've got this podcast that's very particular. I mean, you are living this out. You're trying to serve other people. And you're not doing it to get likes or hits or to make money. You're doing it because you know that there's a message that needs to be heard, that athletes need to hear this, that I need to hear it, that you need to hear it. And, 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 and I, I can almost guarantee it, and maybe I'm wrong, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but don't you get more out of this than you possibly ever imagined? I learned I learn more from this than I ever have. And, and not even just about Christian athletes, it's just about how to live your life like, like Christ uh-huh. did. I mean, he uses all things for his glory. Amen. So. Amen. All the time. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. It, it's it's You're been welcome. such a great conversation. Uh, it was such an honor to have you on. Well, I'm honored that you asked. And anytime, brother, anytime you want me back on, anytime you want to sit and talk a little God, a little theology, a little sports, we can do it. We kind of dug a little deep in the theology world. We can we can bear off that next time if you want to have a little <laughs> bit more fun and talk a little more current events where the gospel meets sports and the middle of it, you know, mm. and the craziness of all that. So we can do that next time. But yeah, open yeah. invitation. I'm openly I'm openly inviting myself to you. Anytime you want, we'll do this. I Definitely. love talking to you. I love being able to share my faith and to let my life reflect the light that I've received from God.